Hey folks, it's Mo Amir. Before we get started, I just wanted to alert you to two exciting developments for me personally. The first is that I'm now an opinion columnist at Vancouver is Awesome. Every week or so, I'll be writing a piece somewhat related to this podcast. So check out Vancouver is Awesome. There's already a handful of my columns up on their site. The second announcement is that I'm also now an editorialist at Global News 980 CKNW for a weekly segment called A Van Color Moment. It's literally two minutes of me ranting and raving about whatever I'd like. It just launched. You can listen to the segments at 7.25 a.m., 10.34 a.m., and 5.25 p.m. on Fridays, or 7.33 a.m. on Saturdays, on 980 AM or live online via CKW's website. The segments will also be online on Curious Cast, so look out for that. And maybe I'll even throw in my debut at the end of this podcast, so keep listening after this episode is over. And while I have you, please drop me a follow on Twitter, at Van Keller, say hello. And also, give me a nice little rating on Apple Podcasts. That actually helps more than you think. Ideally, you give me five stars because we're supposed to be friends, but you know what? Whatever floats your boat, man. Listen to this podcast, listen to CKNW, and read Vancouver is Awesome. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. There's no shortage of um, on-fire chainsaws that I'm juggling right now, but I, <laughs> I seem to like that. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a very prominent provincial politician who I guarantee will make waves in the next provincial election, whenever that might be. She was a teacher in the Victoria School District and in Shawnigan, teaching history, English, and the theory of knowledge. She has been involved in grassroots advocacy as the National Administrator for Results Canada, a nonprofit that works to end extreme poverty, and as a director on the board of Oiko Credit, an international microcredit organization. She was also a volunteer with Citizens Climate Lobby. She served as the Area B director for the Cowichan Valley Regional District for three years before being elected to her current role as the BC member of the Legislative Assembly for the Cowichan Valley. She sits on six parliamentary committees, including the Select Standing Committee on Children and Youth, and of course, most recently, she was elected as the BC Green Party leader. She is Sonia first to now. Sonia, how are you? I'm great, Mo. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. It's so nice to be able to chat with you. I know that there's so much going on right now that my biggest fear is that recording on a Saturday as we are, by Monday, the political landscape will change because an election was announced. Yeah, it, we are in fast-moving times, but uh, <laughs> I, I seem to be built for that. I'm really thriving. I love that. The, the only <laughs> problem with recording on a Saturday for me is uh, my daughter's downstairs making cinnamon buns. Uh, my son's downstairs cleaning up, but my stepson's doing homework. So I'm, I'm confined to a corner of the house, looking out the window at the garden and the forest, uh, and, and have to make my own space. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. And first of all, congratulations on winning the BC Green Party leadership. Thanks, Mo. And, uh, you know, I've said this many, many times before, that 
it is all about the team. So mm-hmm. I, I consider this sort of my fourth big political campaign because uh, I started out in Shawnigan, uh, where we as a community built a campaign to get a permit revoked for a contaminated landfill. The permit mm-hmm. had been issued by the previous government and uh, would allow uh, 5 million tons of contaminated soil right at the headwaters of our drinking watershed, which I think oh, wow. almost anybody would recognize uh, the, the nonsensical insanity of that. But we, mm-hmm. as a community, spent really the better part of four years uh, campaigning to get that ended. We won that. We got the permit revoked. Uh, and then my, my next campaign, well, in the midst of that, I got elected as an area director and had a team to do that. Got elected as an MLA. Had an enormous team here in Cowichan, defying mm-hmm. the, the odds. Um, and then this has been the work of, of yet another incredible team led by uh, Christina Winter and Jillian Oliver and, and these volunteers who stepped up in ways that I could never have imagined. And I'm so grateful to them. And congratulations to Jillian on her new baby. I I spoke to her over the summer, so I'm glad to hear she's doing well. It sounds like you're saying you're 4-0. You're undefeated. Uh, that, I guess you could, you could interpret it that way, Mo. Yeah, it was, uh, and none of them have been easy. You know, these have been in, in every case at the outset, really come up being, uh, coming up against, you know, being told, oh, this is impossible, you can't achieve this, and, uh, and proving again and again that absolutely we can achieve it together. It's interesting timing to me because you won your leadership at a time when the media was so focused on whether Premier Horgan is going to call an early election or not. Do you feel that because of the timing, it took away from the Green Party electing its new leader? Because it doesn't feel like you were able to have much of a victory lap. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally, uh, the, the, from the moment of the announcement of the election, uh, I have been intently focused on the work of, as the new leader, and, and in particular, on the work of, of uh, relaying to John Horgan and to the NDP that uh, it's shocking, it's unbelievable to consider an unnecessary election at a time when we have overlapping health crises. We have a long-standing overdose health crisis in British Columbia, and we're losing mm-hmm. far too many brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, friends, sons, daughters right now. We have the COVID-19 health emergency and the numbers, we are hitting record-setting numbers every week now. Um, we have the, the, the skies, the smoke that has been choking us for the last week, week and a half uh, from another emergency that is unfolding less and less slowly, which is the climate emergency. We have people who are focused on their own personal safety, security, health, wondering if they're going to have a job, wondering if they can get a job, worrying about uh, finding housing or keeping the housing they're in. Mm -hmm. We have so many urgent crises that we are facing in this province right now that what we need are the leaders in this province to say, we are absolutely going to put the people of BC first and service to those people. We've shown that this minority government has delivered more than anybody would have expected in the last three Mm -hmm. years. 
and has been doing it in a way that has been shifting politics in British Columbia. We came together for an emergency session on March 23rd to give $5 billion from unanimously, unanimously supported by all three parties so that the government could react to the emergency in front of them. We came together for this historic and amazing summer session in which we passed the budget, added another $1.5 billion to that so that this government could ensure that they could get going with a recovery plan. We contributed significantly to that recovery plan. And it's, it's time to just focus on the work and the responsibility that we have in front of us. And that is responsibility to the people who are facing across this province in their own lives, in their personal and their business lives, challenges that none of us expected we would have to be facing. So it sounds like your concern is both on a public health side in terms of us being in a pandemic, but also recognizing that there's so much urgency on so many files in this province that you don't want government distracted from that with an election when they don't have to be. Is that correct? So that's absolutely correct. And there's another aspect to this, Mo, that's really important to consider, which is we've come through this COVID crisis uh, as a... As a beacon from around the world. I mean, the New York Times profiled Dr. Bonnie Henry. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, uh, we've had Minister Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry really guide the province in a way that inspired people to trust the guidance that they were getting from their provincial health officer, from their minister of health, inspired us without the kind of uh, lockdown measures or you know, really mm -hmm. enforcing people, inspired British Columbians to, to rise up to their best selves and to do their very best in the face of this crisis. And that was because of the trust. So the, the real danger that also goes along with calling an unnecessary election, with reneging on an agreement that every member of the NDP caucus and our caucus signed in 2017 that clearly states that there would not be a snap election called, reneging on the, the legislation that exists that says uh, we have fixed election dates and that fixed election date is the fall of 2021, is that it diminishes that sense of trust that is more important right now than it's ever been. So a lot of people, and you'll see all of the commentary, I'm sure people are uh, weighing in on this and you just have to go on social media for five minutes to recognize <laughs> that there's a lot of cynicism about uh, you know, this, this government posturing about an election when it's not necessary in the time of this, these kinds of emergencies. And when we those examples of partisanship, of, of sort of cynical power grabbing, it diminishes the trust that people have in government. And, and around the world right now, the, there is risk to democracy everywhere. And mm -hmm. what we have to do in this province is be that beacon of hope again and say, you know what? The times that we are in require of us to do politics in a different way than have been done in the past. We, mm. We've never, we, you know, we've never had this level of overlapping emergencies in, in over a generation. Like, we're talking about, this is World War II level, right? And, mm. and we have to treat it with that same level of urgency and, and responsibility that would be expected of us in those times. And that 
aspect of trust in government is absolutely the essential core of a strong democracy. And eroding that trust in any way, especially in times like this, is, is beyond irresponsible. I want to go back to this idea of cynicism that you brought up. Because there might be some people pointing at the Green Party and saying, well, the only reason that Sonia and the Green Party are against this is because if an election was to be called for the fall, they would not be able to field candidates in every riding. We've seen Facebook ads for the Greens looking for candidates. What's your comment on that? Would you be able to field a candidate in every riding if an election was called for the fall? Yeah, our intention, Mo, of course, is to run a province-wide campaign. Mm-hmm. And, and we are working very hard on that, and we are very committed. And I'm, I'm excited about the caliber of candidates that are already coming forward and approaching me, and, and that we are absolutely committed to uh, continuing to occupy the incredibly important role that the Greens have played in BC in the last three years. I mean, we've brought in, you know, we led the way on banning big money in politics, Mm-hmm. The lobbying reform that exists, pre- reform to professional reliance, uh, the work I've done with Norm Letnick and, and Adrian Dix on health regulation reform in BC, uh, Clean BC, the Innovation Commissioner, the Emerging Economy Task Force. These are all BC Green initiatives. And so we have played this, this very important, very pivotal role. But I'm going to also point out that what SNAP elections do generally is that they diminish for all parties the capacity to have more diverse candidates. Because in a snap election situation, it is much harder for a woman of color, for a young person, to be able to say, you know what, yeah, I can just pull up, stop my life, Uh, I've got that kind of income security that I can put things on hold for uh, a month, and, and jump into the SNAP election. The people that can mm-hmm. do that typically are, are what we have way too many of in the BC legislature already, which are uh, white men of a certain age mm-hmm. because they have the income security, they have that uh, financial stability, they have the support network. And so what we lose in a moment like this, and not just uh, from us, we lose it in all the parties, is that that capacity for us to do what we all need to do right now, which is to put up diverse candidates, to bring in the voices and perspectives that have been lacking for way too long in all of our parliaments, in all of our legislatures. And so you look at some of the, you know, the, the parachute star candidate announcements, even from the NDP this week, mm-hmm. Nathan Cullen. Well, they're, they're going against their own diversity and equity policy. <laughs> A lot of people pointed that out. That's right? correct. <laughs> and so it's not only it's not only hard on on us on a party like ours, and 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 we are, uh, you know, I am committed to to making both our candidates and that legislature more more diverse than it is because diversity it doesn't just matter because oh it looks more like British Columbia. It's the perspectives that people bring in that don't mm. exist. When we have Katrina Absolutely. Chen as the, the Minister of State for Child Care, the reason Katrina has been so fantastic, and I love working with Katrina, by the way. She's a fantastic person and friend. But she 
has a young child who mm-hmm. needs childcare. Yeah. She understands what that's like right now in real time. And so, of course, she's going to bring in urgency. Melanie Mark, the, the way that she's emphasized uh, her commitment to trades, because she's seen in her community and in other Indigenous communities that trades programs change mm-hmm. people's lives. And when we have that diversity of perspective, because we have diversity of people, we actually make so much better decisions. We make decisions that serve everybody and not just the decisions that have t- been typically made, uh, which serve a, a, a too small of a group of people. You've uh, expressed your commitment towards running diverse candidates. What exactly are you doing to ensure that? Snap election or no snap election? Yeah, I mean, of course, it, you know, it's, it's made much harder in the, in the situation we're in because when I approach people, it, you know, the capacity to say, yeah, I can drop my life, as I say, is very different yeah. for, for uh, a woman of color. It's very different for a young person, right? And mm-hmm. so we're, we're, we're working on that and we're leaning into it. We won't achieve, I don't expect, the goal that we want to achieve because of if this snap election goes forward. It, mm-hmm. it just is that much more challenging. But I also look again at the, the bigger parties and at the NDP that they're willing to, to squander it their own policies in a moment like this is an indication of how snap elections, especially an unnecessary one like this, not only unhealthy for democracy, they undermine trust in in government and they undermine the the goals that we're all trying to achieve. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's yet another slate of reasons to not do this. And I do hope that, that John Horgan and his party will do the right thing and not call this election. And, and I've made that abundantly clear all week um, because we have so much to do. What is your current relationship with the premier? Have you been able to express your concerns directly to him? And I ask this because the Globe and Mail's Gary Mason had a tweet where he said, quote, I suspect Sonia first to now, to be the last to know. Mm-hmm. So yes, um, as part of our agreement with CASA, the meeting there are there are meetings between the premier and the leader of our party, and I've had a meeting with the premier. Mm-hmm. Our our relationship goes back um, before 2017. There's some interesting stories. Uh, my husband and John Horgan went to the same high school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they've actually known each other, you know, since high school. Yeah. Um, and when I was involved in, uh, you know, the campaign for the Shawnigan watershed, uh, and John Horgan was the leader of the opposition at the time, 2015, uh, Easter 2015, I met with him and his chief of staff at the time, John Heaney, uh, down at the legislature and, and, you know, engaged with him on, on what I thought was a very serious issue, this threat to our watershed, to our community, um, and worked quite closely with the MLA here at the time, Bill Routley, uh, and, and was engaged. He, we had what we called Helicopter Day. We had a helicopter, a national media event here in Shawnigan on January 5th, 2016, 
uh, in which we had a helicopter fly from the village all day long up over the landfill site and back to the village. We had basically every news outlet in BCA and, and nationally. Mm-hmm. And we had a number of politicians, including John Horgan. He and I took the first flight together. Uh, the first of many flights that I've had with John Horgan in a helicopter, which is a very strange <laughs> thing. Also, Andrew Wilkinson. I've spent a lot of time in helicopters with these men. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, things you never think that you uh, would have ever had on a bucket list, but there they are. Sure. <laughs> um, and so it's not like I'm coming into a, a meeting with him, you know, as a newly elected leader of the Green Party with no mm-hmm. past and no connection. There is, a, there is a connection and a past. And so, you know, I'm not going to go into any details about what we talked about, but we had a very, a very good and productive conversation. And, and yeah, of course, I was, I was direct. I want to talk about the confidence and supply agreement. You've just said that this agreement would effectively be violated if a snap election was called, but then your predecessor... Andrew Weaver was saying that an early election would not be a violation of this agreement. Is Dr. Weaver wrong? You know, I'm, I'm not going to weigh in or speculate on, on his thinking or what motivates him. I, I, <laughs> I, I just really want to focus on the fact that 44 of us put our signatures on a document, and that document very clearly states that the government would not call a snap election, would not call an early election, that the next election would be the fall of 2021, and that we would work from a spirit of good faith and no surprises to deliver to the people of BC what they should expect from their government, which is services, which is recognizing that they need to have uh, uh, the knowledge that government is putting their health and well-being, their financial security, putting issues like housing, transit infrastructure, education at the forefront of everything that we're working on. Mm-hmm. And that is what that agreement is about. And again, you know, choosing to say, eh, I put my signature on that and, and now it's not really convenient, so my signature doesn't really matter. Uh, you're, you're feeding that mistrust and cynicism that is so mm. corrosive. Is this something that the lieutenant governor should keep in mind then? Again, you know, speculating on, on the lieutenant governor and, and what she should and should not keep in mind, I expect and, uh, that just as the former lieutenant governor would have had uh, quite a bit of advice from constitutional experts and lawyers, as mm-hmm. she was faced with, you know, a situation that is very rare in British Columbia, um, a minority government. Um, I expect that this lieutenant governor is getting equally expert advice from, from people who really know and understand the constitution, the law, uh, parliamentary tradition. And, and then she will have that burden of a, of a decision to make. I, I think... What I am focused on is my peer and my colleague, which is John Horgan and the, the leader of the NDP. Uh, and I'm focused on ensuring that he understands completely uh, where I stand and why I'm here and my, my position, as well as I would expect and have seen. It's the position of many, many, many other people. 
around mm-hmm. the province. You know, I'm not right. I'm not a lone voice here. Uh, you, you know, people. I, are, are I understand that. that. Yeah, but your audience is not only John Horgan; it is the public, right? Like, yes, you are also trying to convince the public that this is wrong. So, it's not so much speculating on what the lieutenant governor should do. It's just asking your opinion as to whether or not this agreement, which you're saying mm-hmm. would be violated in the case of a snap election, mm-hmm. if this agreement should be taken into account. Absolutely. It's an agreement that, uh, again, we all signed it, and that has been highly effective in delivering, I would argue, some of the best governance that this province has seen in a very long time. Sonia, you described your election as the leader of the BC Greens, and you just sort of said something very similar just now as, quote, a symbol of something different in politics. Can you explain to me how politics is done currently and how you represent the change of how it should be done? You know, I I reflect on this a lot. I've been been engaged in the world around me from uh, as early as I can remember. I think, you know, we always had... CBC playing in the car and in the house. Uh, we always had conversations about about what was happening. I I remember very clearly, and I think this was the the earliest political awakenings, which was during the free trade negotiations in the 1980s. So I was, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, and and around our family table, the conversations about the implications of that were were very common. And and one of the interesting things was that uh, the, the potential risk to our water sovereignty and to our water security as part of the free trade agreement um, that Mulroney signed was something that really uh, caused a lot of concern and distress for my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, I'm a kid, like, why? You just turn on the tap, water comes out. Uh, and I never really imagined that I would end up being this warrior for, for water security and water protection. Sure. And, and, you know, my dad instilled in me, he was a, he was born in Eastern Germany in 1939, literally the month that the war began and uh, barely survived that, lost his father who was um, taken by Russians and died in a prisoner of war camp in Russia. Wow. Wow. Um, his mother almost died of typhoid fever. He and he was told at six years old, as his mother was, you know, on the verge of dying, that he would be responsible for his four-year-old sister. Oh my God! Um, and then, after the war ended, and it was it was um, his mother and him and his little sister, his other brothers uh, were gone. They'd all been conscripted into the into the army. Hmm. Um. She started to recognize what was happening with the border between East and West Germany and had the wherewithal to to get out, to pack a picnic basket, sew their valuables into their clothing and get into West Berlin and spend uh, six months in a refugee camp and then be flown into West Germany. Hmm. Uh, And so when he emigrated here as a teenager, he took a a ship across the ocean uh, and then the train across the country and came to Sydney, British Columbia, um, taught himself English mostly on that trip by reading the newspapers in a German-English dictionary, graduated from high school, went to UVic, 
graduated from UVic, went to uh, U of A, got a master's degree and a PhD in psychology, and instilled in me that working hard and education are the two most important things in, in life. Sure. Uh, and, and also instilled in me this deep sense of commitment to Canada and to the idea of democracy, because, of course, he'd seen the opposite took me to East Germany when I was 10, so that was a very informative trip. Um, and that's a whole other story. But the, then I realized, and I, I look back on, on my childhood and my young adulthood, the benefits that I had because government really focused on, on how to ensure that people in Canada could thrive. So um, I, was, I got to go to a... a experimental early childhood education program. It was uh, you know, funded by the province of Alberta and the city of Edmonton, and I was one of the first, first uh, cohorts in that and got to cut the ribbon in a big ceremonial event <laughs> with the mayor. They played Where Do the Children Play by Cat Stevens. Um, <laughs> but I learned to read and write when I was five years old in that program. And I also learned this deep love for learning, and it set me up to be a life, lifelong learner. And so I'm mm -hmm. a real champion for early childhood education. I also was a huge transit user, six years old. I'm already taking the bus all over town by myself because that's the, you know, it was the 70s, and that's what you did. Um, my mom, when my parents split up, my mom was able to have subsidized housing. And so was, could afford her rent and to take care of her three kids and be able to save up to buy some land and build her own house eventually and get her own income and financial security. Mm -hmm. I went to French immersion. I came out here, studied at UVic when there was a tuition freeze, which meant that as a single mom, I could afford to go to school. I had childcare subsidies for my son so he could afford to go to good childcare, early childhood education himself. Uh, I was able to access additional training. I, I learned to be a bookkeeper and I started my own little bookkeeping business when I was in my 20s so I could support myself through university. And mm. so I look at this and I say, look at all of these government programs, these policies that allowed me to, to become the person that I am, to contribute in the way that I can. I have a master's degree in history. I have a teaching degree I was able to, to do that thing I love, which is learn and study, and now take that capacity that I, I gained by studying and learning for so long to, to apply to this role that I'm in, to see the world from, from the perspective of a historian and a teacher and a mother. And so I, 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 that's the foundational piece. And then when I was in Seanigan and we were fighting for our water, I was determined that this was a nonpartisan, not, you know, not limited by jurisdictional fight. I, mm -hmm. I have pictures of Andrew Weaver standing next to Bill Routley and Alistair McGregor and Elizabeth May and Steve Hauser, who was the liberal candidate in this riding in 2017, and me. And, like, we, we were absolutely united because water is not a political issue. It shouldn't be a partisan mm -hmm. issue. It is a human rights issue. No community can thrive without water. But we should also be recognizing there's a whole bunch of issues like that right now. The opioid right. crisis is not a partisan issue. It is a health emergency, has to be treated as such. Let's look at the best evidence, the best practices, and move. And, and we are making some headway on that right now. It's been too slow, and it's been too late, 
And that doesn't mean that we don't right now lean in with the urgency and the immediacy that we need to have. Mm-hmm. Public transit, it should be a nonpartisan issue. People can access work and education if they can access public transit. And we, we cannot limit people because they can't get around in a city like Vancouver. We have to make that accessible and affordable, if not free. Mm-hmm. We have to look at digital connectivity so that rural towns where we want to live and grow up, have our kids grow up and stay, can have that access to a global economy where here in Duncan, for example, we have a, an animation studio in downtown Duncan that produces a Academy Award uh, winning animation. Hmm. And that, you, you know, they don't have to be in Hollywood or Vancouver to do that. They can live in this lovely little town of Duncan, which truly is a fantastic town, and, hmm. and, and produce that work there because of, that's the nature of, of our digital world and our high-tech world. I can appreciate how your familial experience, your personal experience has informed your philosophy. I can appreciate these priorities that you're focused on. I suppose my question is when you stake that claim to voters by saying that you are going to be something different in politics, I'm just trying to figure out what are you saying about the current status quo Mm -hmm. and what are you saying that you want to do differently? Mm-hmm. Let's start with the status quo, Mo. Sure. All of these emergencies that we're in right now uh, are directly linked to how we've done politics and how decision makers have made decisions for the past many decades. So I've, I've got Seth Klein's new book right in front of me mobilizing Canada for the climate emergency, a good war. And he's saying, you know, we've known for decades now that we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions because if we don't, we're going to see exactly what we're seeing right now, which Mm -hmm. is unbreathable air because of climate fires, fires that are unlike anything anybody has ever seen before. I mean, I don't Mm. think you and I could have imagined 20 years ago that people would be talking about fire tornadoes. No. Right? Pretty unbelievable, yeah. Or or seeing um, half a million people have to be evacuated from Western United States Mm -hmm. at the same time as the hurricane season on the Eastern Coast looks to be record-setting. At the same time as, you know, droughts or record-setting temperatures have just become so, so normal. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we've done politics, the way that we've let partisanship and the focus on what separates us and what divides us and what's different about us, the way that that has dominated, and when we see where that leads to at its worst outcome in the United States, mm-hmm. we can't go there. We can't afford it. And so what I think we need and what we have achieved to some measure in the last three years, is the recognition that if we focus instead on that common purpose, on that, that shared purpose that, that we all agree on, and we say, how do we move with the, the urgency and efficiency that this requires of us, we can achieve so much more. So one example is the, you know, 
the health regulation work that, that I've been on this committee with Norm and, and Adrian Dix. And because it had, it was a consensus model, the three of us working with the ministry staff, taking input from, from health professionals and the public throughout the entire process. And we have been able to bring forward recommendations that, that make some pretty sweeping changes to how we would regulate uh, health professionals in British Columbia with public interest and health and safety at the very center of all of those recommendations for change. Now, if mm. one party had tried to do that by itself, they would have become a political target for another party. Oh, you sure. can't do that. You're alienating the, the, the experts. How, how, how do you, you know, how dare you say that, that the model isn't working? We can, of course, allow this to carry on. All the, whatever would have happened. But because we did it as a consensus approach and because we did it across three parties and because we put public interest, not partisanship, at the center of all of our work, we've mm -hmm. achieved this, this ability. And this is what we need to do on climate action. This is what we need to do on a just transition of our economy very quickly. This is what we need to do on the overdose crisis. This is what we need to do on mm -hmm. the housing crisis. We need to say the shared purpose, the common and shared purpose, and what we owe to the people that we represent, it requires of us to put that at the center of our work, not, you know, how are we going to convince you that the other political party is so terrible that you have to vote for us? I mean, I, I it, sure. it, you know, Imagine if all three leaders of the party, and I, I, I just, you know, this is a little vision. Imagine if all three leaders of the political parties came forward during election campaigns and said to the public, here are the issues on which we agree that the action that needs to be taken needs to be rooted in evidence and needs to be rooted in urgency. And we mm -hmm. are agreeing that no matter who you elect, that is what's going to happen because some things have to be beyond partisanship in the world mm. that we're in and the world that we've gotten to because of how we've done politics. And I'm tired of the new normal. I'm tired of adapting. I'm tired of imagining that my kids have to consistently and continuously expect that their world is going to get worse and that worse and that their job in life is to adapt to an increasingly terrible new normal. I want my kids to imagine that the normal is going to start getting better, not worse. Mm -hmm. And for that to happen, we can't do politics the same way anymore. We have to say, we have to rise above this. We have to be better. We have to meet the challenge of our times. So let's talk about this on a policy basis now. Understanding that at present, everything is being viewed through a COVID-19 lens, what are your top three issues for British Columbians? So, uh, top three absolutely. priorities, I should say. Yeah, the, co the COVID lens applies to everything, as should the climate lens, because they're not disconnected, right? They're, mm. they're, they're, they're not. I mean, scientists and epidemiologists point to the fact that the more we lose biodiversity, the more we are going to be prone to these kinds of, of diseases, these kinds of viruses and bacteria. Because mm -hmm. the biodiversity is an integral part of the health, not of, only of the planet, but of us, 
right? Sure. The more we, uh, the, the more we allow for the kinds of uh, industrial agriculture, you know, to continue in which we're creating superbugs because of the antibiotics we're using, the more we're going to see super, these, these bacteria that we have no way of treating. So, so COVID-19 and the climate need to be the lens that we're looking at through everything. And then sure. we have to recognize that, you know, within that, what are people experiencing in their day-to-day lives? Well, the cost of living is too high. People mm-hmm. feel incredibly insecure financially. Um, so we have to find out. We have to figure out the ways. How do we bring that cost of living down? How do we pe- help people feel secure enough uh, about the businesses, the small businesses that they, they operate right now, or for people, the entrepreneurs to feel secure enough to say, I can open, I can start a new business, even in these times, because our communities are made vibrant and wonderful because of small businesses and medium-sized businesses that are run by our local friends and neighbors. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what gives our communities life. And then we have to make people feel, you know, how do we, how do we get them feeling comfortable about investing in the future and, and taking risks as entrepreneurs? Well, we need to invest in childcare. We need to invest in education. We need to invest in transit. We need to invest in building the economy that will help people thrive. And that's a, 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 a transition economy, a green economy, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of ways that governments can add to people's feeling of security. And I go back to my own story, right? Look at all of the policies and programs that I benefited from that I felt secure enough that I could risk going and getting my master's degree, right? Mm-hmm. I, could, I could risk uh, leaving a marriage that didn't work for me because I knew I had the, the support as a single mom to be able to do that. And, and I could thrive as a young woman and then thrive uh, in my life later on. So we need to have that sense that people feel, I'm going to be okay. Right now, people don't feel that. People are worried Mm. that I'm going to lose my apartment. Where am I going to live? How am I going to afford it? How do I get a job when I can't afford transit to get across town to get to that job? How do I get Mm -hmm. more education, which is essential for people to be able to thrive when I can't afford the tuition? And so we have to to shift this around away from this like, hey, individual person, it's all on you. And and it's up to you to, to, to make yourself be okay in this very uncertain, very worrying world. And we have to shift that and say, collectively, we need to make it so that people feel more secure and we need to put those programs and policies and infrastructure in place so that people have that sense of security because when they have it, they are able to take risks, they're able to, to contribute, they're able to thrive. I remember when I was, you know, when I was a single mom and if I found out I had to move, say, you know, I, one story was when my landlord uh, gave me notice that he was going to move out, back into the house that my son and I were living in. And I had, you know, roommates so that we could afford the rent. And, and, and it took about three weeks before I could find another place to live. We had very low vacancy rate mm. at that time. And I couldn't focus. I couldn't focus on my, my schoolwork. I couldn't focus on my employment. And I couldn't yeah, focus course. on my kid. And so yeah. I, was, I was unable to be 
operating at my best because of that uncertainty about where I was going to live in three weeks or two weeks or one week. And so that collective uncertainty right now is so serious and so significant that again, you know, the notion that we would just be like, oh, let's just go to an election in the midst of all. No, we, <laughs> we, need, we need to, like every hour of every day as elected representatives, as politicians, as part of government has to be focused on, let's get that feeling of security up for people. Let's get mm-hmm. those programs running. Let's get that money invested. Let's have, you know, programs where any young person who doesn't have a job right now can get to work restoring natural habitat and environment so that we do have clean water in all our communities, so that we are removing the, f- the fuel load from our own forests, that we are increasing the biodiversity, that we are restoring that habitat. Or let's also look at how do we get a mass retrofit program going in every town in every community in BC, because there's the two lenses. We get people mm-hmm. back to work in a time of economic uncertainty, doing learning skills and doing something that reduces our greenhouse gas emissions. So if we start looking at all of our decisions through those two lenses, then we start moving towards that outcome for my kids, your kids, everybody's kids, where the new normal isn't always worse than the last normal. So what I'm hearing from you is through the lens effectively of public health and climate action, your issues that you're focused on are affordability, green economy, and what I would call social infrastructure to provide opportunities for everyone. Is that a fair summary? That's a fair summary. And I think just recognizing that, that we have to stop thinking as things, of things as disconnected right? Mm. Housing is connected to employment, is connected to transit, is connected to education, is connected to early childhood education, is connected to bicycle paths and walking paths, is connected to supporting small businesses, is connected to building up a manufacturing sector in British Columbia, turning us into uh, the high-tech hub that we have every capacity to be if we would Mm -hmm. only (laughs) make those investments. Like, All of these things are connected, and I think we've also done politics in a way that says, well, we'll just look at this one thing in its own little silo and put people to work on that. We have to start to work from a place of recognizing how these things are all connected. But the the fundamental thing, and public health is exactly right, Mo, the fundamental thing is that we want a society, we want a province, we want people in this province to feel like they can feel that basic level of security. I'm going to mm-hmm. be okay. I'm going to be okay. And right now, too many people don't feel that. Historically speaking, has one of the issues with the BC Greens been that the public doesn't really know what the BC Greens stand for, aside from looking at things through a climate action lens? And I say this because even within caucus, when Andrew Weaver was leader— there was clearly an ideological rift with Weaver on one side and you and Adam Olson on the other side. And I think when it comes to the general public, they're still probably not aware of that rift. And if they are, they're only recently aware of it. Is that one of the issues on the political side of being able to explain what the BC Greens stand for aside from climate? 
I think we have to do a better job of telling telling people what we stand for and who we are. Um, and and I'm working very hard to do that, obviously. <laughs> I think in terms of, you know, ideological rifts or left and right, again, I, I studied history. I, I know the origins of, of the political spectrum in those terms. That's two centuries ago. We're, we're not in the same times. I, you know, so I don't, I don't look at, at how I think about policy in terms of, is this on the left or is this on the right? I look at it in terms of what are the outcomes I want to achieve. And I've just, you know, mm. when I talk to you about, I want people in this province to feel secure. I want people in this province to feel like they can take some risks because risk takers are the people who, who are the, the change makers and the disruptors and they bring us the, the exciting innovation that we need. But people mm -hmm. can't take risks when they don't feel secure. I couldn't take risks when I didn't know where I was going to live in a month. Mm -hmm. And so I look at it through that lens of where do we want to end up? What do we want our communities to look and feel like? I want my community to be connected. I want, my, I want to know the people on my street. I want to see them when I go down to my local shops, when I go to my markets. I want to look the people who are growing my food in the eye, as I often do. I, you know, I think of, of James. I eat a lot of his eggs <laughs> and uh, eat a lot of his produce. I, I want my community to have that feeling, not only of connectivity, and, and security, but resiliency. I want to know that my neighborhood is going to come together in times of emergency as we have through COVID. I want to know that my community has what it needs. It needs water. We need soil. We need clean air. We need a local economy that keeps moving no, no matter what the global economy is doing. We, we should be looking at energy resiliency so that we're not subject to the shocks that could be coming with, uh, with climate change. And so I, I, I don't look at it through those, those lenses, which again, have gotten us to where we are today. I look at it through a lens of where do we want to be? What do we want it to feel like to be a British Columbian, to live in British Columbia? And, and how can we make it feel safe and secure? for everybody in every town in every region of this province. And then we work back from that place and all of the mm -hmm. things that I've listed, resiliency, you know, local economy, local manufacturing, value added. Let's stop shipping our resources off the coast while they are raw and start using them to build jobs and innovation and, 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 you know, education opportunities. Let's mm -hmm. look at the transition we need to make on our energy and say, you know, we could have a clean energy regionally developed, a clean energy economy in every region of BC because it's going to be different. It might be uh, wind power more in, you know, the Tumblr Ridge area where they've got fantastic wind, or it might be geothermal in Northwest BC where they're sitting on some of the most extraordinary geothermal reserves. And then on top of that, imagine if... They're not only extracting geothermal energy to, to provide energy to the people who live in that region, but they're building the uh, BC Re Institute for Renewable Energy, and they're bringing the best and brightest minds to develop the innovations and technology that we then export that to the rest of the world. 
We export mm-hmm. the genius, the, the innovation, the, the capacity to educate, the capacity to, to think forward and to, to build that better, that better society. So while we're building it, we're also uh, being the leaders and shipping out that knowledge and understanding to the rest of the world. Not our raw logs, not diluted bitumen. We are shipping out our genius, our innovation, our education, our capacity to be entrepreneurial, that's what we're shipping out. That vision, though, has to be communicated to the general public in British Columbia. And I think, and you please correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think most British Columbians don't really know what the Greens stand for. You're obviously trying to set out that vision. If we were to have an election a year from now as planned— is that enough time for you to really be able to communicate to British Columbians who vote, who are casually following what's happening in government, what the BC Greens stand for? Yeah, I'm five days into the job, Mo. I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, here's the thing, is that I'm not, I'm not, nobody's putting, you know, a whole bunch of notes in front of me. I've been thinking about this for my entire adult life. Mm-hmm. This isn't like, um, you know, oh, I, I now have to start thinking of a vision that I have for my province. Mm-hmm. This is rooted in my work in Shawnigan, where I recognized and realized early on in that effort that we couldn't be rooted in anger or hatred, mm-hmm. that we had to be rooted in a positive vision for our future of our province, of our community, of our our. our town, Shawnigan Lake. And so I, you know, we started talking about, you know, a contaminated landfill is no part of the vision that we have for our community. Mm-hmm. And, and in the midst of, of that effort to stop, uh, to get a permit revoked, which has never happened in BC before that, we also came together as a community with all of our teams and all of our energy and all of our hope and vision for the future. And we fundraised enough money to be able to buy a 250-acre mountain in our community to show that we're not just talking about what we don't want. We're mm-hmm. talking about what we do want. And now there's this beautiful mountain. And I encourage all your listeners to go to Instagram and look for the Mount Baldy swing pictures. Because there's a swing <laughs> on the top of the mountain. And we have Instagram people coming up to Shawnigan to find this swing uh, oh, every it. day of the week. And that <laughs> mountain represents what can happen when you're united behind a positive vision for your future. And then the other midst of it, we also came together and we brought, you know, Rotary and uh, the local government. I was the area and uh, volunteers and timber framers. Mm-hmm. And we came together and built a beautiful, absolutely gorgeous timber frame pavilion in the middle of our little park in the village of Shawnigan so that we have a gathering place where we can celebrate because we got so used to coming together in the midst mm-hmm. of fighting against that permit to celebrate. And so it's extraordinary what can happen when there is a positive vision, when there's a, and, and not just positive, not like we want things to be better. This is what we want. This is how it should feel. This mm-hmm. is how it should look. And then you unite people in that 
and you can achieve anything. And I, you know, I, I, Seanigan, we are a population, about 9,000 people. We stood up to the provincial government. We made things happen that, that, you know, nobody thought we could do. And we did it because we could articulate and we could articulate where we wanted to go. We can do this for the whole province. I can see it. I can mm-hmm. feel what it feels like to be in a community where we've built that social infrastructure, where we've built that connectivity, where we've started to come together and say, I know what I want this to look like in a year, in five years, in 10 years. And, and the, other, the part about this too, you know, we have a, an issue with systemic racism in Canada and BC. And, and one of the things about what happens is when we build that, that social fabric from a neighborhood level up, is that it's pretty hard to be afraid of your neighbors. It's pretty hard to be uh, stereotyping your neighbors mm-hmm. when you've had a backyard barbecue with them and you've seen their kids and you actually just really know and love them. And we mm-hmm. need that. We need that fabric, that level of social connectivity to be built into everything right now because we're only going to be able to thrive with all of these emergencies that we're in if we're doing it from a place of connection and compassion and kindness. Mm-hmm. I know you don't like this particular line of questioning, <laughs> but I have to ask you. When we talk about Andrew Weaver, we can't ignore him because the majority of the work that the BC Greens did in this last parliament was under his leadership. And I told him on the podcast, and I still believe this to be true, that he was and is the most consequential BC Green in the province's history. I think most people would expect that he would not particularly interfere in politics with his opinions now that he's an outgoing MLA. But on this podcast, he effectively endorsed John Horgan. He says he wants John Horgan to continue to be premier after the election, whenever that might happen. I even asked Global's Richard Zussman, and Richard agreed with me that such a statement was pretty weird. What did you make of Andrew Weaver effectively endorsing Premier Horgan? And I know you say, you'll you say that you don't want to answer that or you want to talk about that, but I think it's still important because there is a leadership transition, and it's kind of weird that the former leader would endorse the leader of another party. And this was prior to you winning the leadership, of course. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, we've talked a lot, Mo, uh, in this, in this uh, podcast about how I see politics differently from a lot of other people and and i think collaboration and and cooperation is really essential and at the same time cannot endorse about john horgan's decision making and the ndp's decision making i cannot endorse that they have chosen to give six billion dollars in subsidies to the lng industry at a time Mm -hmm. when Western United States is on fire. I can't endorse that. I can't say mm-hmm. that, that that is the leadership we need right now. I can say that, you know, in the moment we're in, in the emergency, we need governance. But in terms of the next election, we, we cannot continue 
to think that somebody can be taking climate seriously and at the same time subsidizing a dying industry, using that should be spent on all the things that you and I have been talking about. Education. Mm -hmm. Imagine, imagine if we said, we are all in on education. We are not going to take the framework of our public education system, which is already struggling, and ram in a new public health emergency where we, we can't really uh, figure out how to square the fact that we're telling people don't gather in groups of more than 30 unless you're in a school classroom in British Columbia, mm -hmm. in which case, fill your boots. Because there isn't the boldness and the courage and the vision right now to say, this is the moment of crisis that presents the most extraordinary opportunity for us to say, we need a different framework for education. And we can mm -hmm. build it right now in this moment. So I can't endorse a premier and a, a government that has let that moment literally fall by the wayside. Imagine if we said about education right now, we need to reimagine the classroom entirely. Some days uh, the classroom is, is inside a building. Some days it's in a forest. Some days it's in a garden. Some days it's online because the world is, is you know, Ferris Bueller. The world's moving pretty fast, right? Sure. And, and we're not adapting. We, we have a model of education from 100 years ago that lines kids up in straight desks and says, you know, we're going to keep doing this the same way we've always done this. And I've been a teacher. There were no straight lines of desks in my classroom. <laughs> we were always in a circle. Mm -hmm. We were always in a collaborative mode. I'm, I'm, I'm still in touch with so many of my students. Uh, some of them helped volunteer on this, on this campaign I was just on. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't endorse, uh, you know, a premier that, that is pulling us backwards at a moment in history when the only thing we have to do is look to the future that will be better and, and subsidizing the oil and gas industry, approving Site C and undermining food security for the northeast of our province, carrying on with fracking, which will massively increase because of these massive subsidies to the LNG industry. And when fracking undermines groundwater and our air, and it makes our infrastructure unstable because of the earthquakes that are connected to it, I can't endorse that, Mo. I can't mm -hmm. say that's good enough. It's not good enough in the day that we are in right now. It's not good enough for the future that we have to start building immediately. And so Andrew can choose to endorse anybody he wants. He can choose to, to make the decisions he's made. I have no say and no input into those decisions. But I intend to take the foundation that he built as the previous leader of this party, and I intend to build a far, far greater, much larger infrastructure. And I intend to welcome people to the BC Green Party who never imagined that they would be here, but who mm -hmm. have found a home 
because this is the political home they've been waiting for for their whole lives. And honestly, I think that that is your challenge. And it goes back to that question I asked you earlier about the ambiguity with how voters view the BC Greens. I think there is confusion. I'm not blaming you or, or anyone else. I'm just saying that even this example of what Mr. Weaver's doing and the differences that you and he have, it creates a lot of confusion amongst voters about what the BC Greens stand for. And I think that is your biggest challenge to be able to effectively communicate that to voters. Because a lot a lot of voters are still looking at the left-right labor business spectrum, and they don't know where the Greens stand in, yep. in that regard. So I want you to make me an elevator pitch. I, you've been able to really discuss things that are important to you. You've been able to discuss your vision, but in about, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and, and in about a, just a minute, like okay. an elevator pitch. I'm ready. I want you to give British Columbia your your sales pitch effectively. So, Sonia, I'm a voter that's obviously really concerned about public health right now, first and foremost, but I am also concerned about the economy. Mm-hmm. And I want a fair economy. I don't want an economy where it's only big companies that get handouts and benefits. I want there to be an even playing field and inf- infrastructure where entrepreneurs with innovative ideas can thrive. And we're not helping along industries or companies that should have been gone by the wayside for a while. Most of all, though, I'm starting to get concerned about the callousness when it comes to taking care of people. I worry that in the growing wealth and equity gap, you know, yes, there is a middle class that has found life to be less and less affordable, and that is a major problem. But there's also homelessness. There's the opioids poisoning crisis. There's how we take care of our elderly and people with disabilities, issues that have really been highlighted by this COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, there's reconciliation with First Nations people. And I want true good faith leadership on all these files. And I'll be honest, I like what the BC NDP have done in government. I might not agree with everything, but I think that they are a government that has tried to make life better for all British Columbians. I've given you that backstory. I think a lot of British Columbians feel the way that I do. Communicate to me why I should vote for the BC Greens, why I would want Sonia Firstenau as my premier in British Columbia. The entire reason I got into politics, that I got involved in politics, was because I wanted to take care of the people in my community. I wanted to make sure that this community that I love has safe drinking water and has a future, because without safe drinking water, there's no future. And as an MLA, that has been the center of my work. How do I take care of people? I've worked on files that very few people seem interested in. We still have uh, the apprehension of Indigenous children by the child welfare system in BC at the rate that it was, what, that it was during the residential school era. I have, I have made this an enormous priority in my writing because we're ground zero for that. I've worked with Cowichan tribes, with Indigenous people and leaders 
to bring forward policies to, to stop, for example, birth alerts, where social workers walk into a hospital and remove an infant who has just been born from their mother. I focus on how do we build those communities that you're talking about, Mo, where the, the small businesses are thriving. I've been a small business owner. I've done books for small businesses. I understand deeply the margins and how difficult it is to thrive as a small business. And people do it because they love being entrepreneurs, but they do it mostly because they love their communities and they want to bring something to their community. And I think that what we need is, is government that looks at evidence, that looks at best solutions, and that looks at putting people and their health and well-being at the center of every decision. When COVID-19 has resulted in the billionaires getting richer and the middle class getting leaner and people getting more and more concerned about their, their financial security, we need to fix that. This isn't how things should work. The mm -hmm. primary interest of government has to be the people that we serve. And we have to do everything we can to make sure that that sense of security that I was talking about earlier, that everybody in this province can have that sense of security. And I would point to that a lot of the work that's been done uh, in the last three years has been the collaboration of our two parties. Mm. Uh, we have put the priority and the focus on, on people and on social services. Uh, I've worked very closely with Katrina Chen on the early childhood education and childcare file. Uh, mm. We've looked at how do we reduce the worst aspects of poverty. We have to start measuring with proper indicators, genuine progress indicators, will tell us if our economy is actually serving people. Right now, GDP mm -hmm. just tells us how big it is. It doesn't tell us if the outputs or the outcomes from our economy are actually good for people. Until we measure that, the real measurements of how people are doing, how are we possibly going to make the best decisions to get the outcomes we want? So we need mm -hmm. to measure differently. And we need to, you know, when we put billions of dollars a year into fossil fuel subsidies instead of into the infrastructure, the services, the small business supports, the manufacturing sector that, that actually would make our communities thrive, we're not on the right track and we need to get on the right track. Mm -hmm. Sonia, this was really interesting. I'm very excited for what you bring to any election, whether it's in the fall or it's next year. Where do people follow you? How do they learn more? How do they support you? So the easiest thing is go to bcgreens.ca. That's the website for, our, for the BC Greens. And lots of information will be on there, including how to become a member, uh, how to sign up to get information, how to donate. We are here to continue to make change that serves people in British Columbia first and foremost. And I'm committed to that. Uh, more than anything else. And I'm so, so excited to be in this place and to bring what I bring to it. I'm, I'm so ready. I, you know, as I said, I'm five days in. I, I am going to give this everything that I've got 
because I think more than ever, BC needs the BC Green Party. Can we also give a big shout out to Harrison Johnston? He is so oh. cool. I love that he listens to this podcast and he helps me boost it to his own online community. I'm really grateful for listeners like him, and I know he's a big supporter of yours. And can you please convince him to run in my riding? We're neighbors, so I think he should run for, for you. Harrison, this is directly to Harrison. First of all, you're so awesome. Thank you for all your help on the campaign, but mostly thank you for being the leader that you are, for being the sustainability, for bringing people together, for invigorating young people around climate action, and for being such a clear voice for what we need in this province. I just, I so admire you, Harrison. You're truly awesome and you need to run so that Mo can vote for you. <laughs> that is one of the best notes to end a podcast on, Sonia. Thank you so much for your time. Mo, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> People, she's the BC MLA for Cowichan Valley and the leader of the BC Green Party, possibly even your future Premier of British Columbia. She is Sonia now. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Hey folks, I'm Mo Amir, this is CKNW, and this is your Van Color Moment. As we batten down the hatches to insulate ourselves from wildfire smoke bedazzled with a plague of looper mods, as if this wasn't a bad omen for kids going back to school, I unburden myself from being told to adjust to the new normal. Adjust implies a minor change to a more comfortable position, like flipping your pillow over to the cool side. The word should be adapt, in that there is no going back now. This pandemic, in fact, this year, will have lasting effects. A new normal? Folks, there is no such thing as a new normal or an old normal. There's just the here and now. Greek philosopher Heraclitus told us 2,500 years ago that the only constant in life is change. Change can be glacial, rapid, or jarringly abrupt, and we must all embrace impermanence, especially in these abruptly changing times. We may be wired to seek stability, but we are built to adapt and we're all trying to adapt to varying degrees of difficulties. The secret is gratitude. Now I know that sounds like some commercialized cliche written on the side of a cereal box, but whether it's your health, your loved ones and four-legged friends, a roof over your head, or by virtue of being alive, the hope for a greater future with a wealth of possibilities, you can adapt to your challenges with gratitude for the goodness that I know you have if you are listening to this right now. Ten years ago, my mother, at 49 years old, on her deathbed, had a defiant smile on her face. She told me she's leaving the party early, but she had a blast while it lasted. So forget about adjusting to the new normal. Praise your blessings and live by Dr. Bonnie Henry's mantra. This is our time to be kind, to be calm, and to be safe. And if I may add, Vancouver, this is our time to be grateful. This has been your Van Color Moment with Mo Amir on 980 CKNW.